You can open your Bible if you like to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. <clears throat> and first of all, I'd just like to thank you. Thank this church family. Thank all of you for your support of the Hope Russia ministry over the years. Ascension Church has been one of our major church partners for quite a long time, and we couldn't do what we do without the help of our brothers here in the Pacific Northwest. Hope Russia is, and this is not a Hope Russia sermon, this is a sermon for y'all in your own, your own lives, but I would need to wax eloquent here for just a second about Hope Russia. So what it is, we're a church planting network, we're the US agency for a little baby denomination called the Presbyterian Church of Eurasia that our founder began, Blake Purcell started, and this presbytery helped ordain the first pastors from it. So that's what we do. Russia is a very lost place. I've planted two PCA churches. They've all been in the South, and it's much harder to plant a church in the Pacific Northwest. Well, it's logarithmically more difficult to plant a church in Russia where it's 1%, 1.1% evangelical Christian, Protestant Christian. So it's a, it's a tough place to do ministry, and we appreciate your help doing it. And I've enjoyed getting to know Nate. Nate came to our breakfast. We had a breakfast at General Assembly back in June, and Nate came. It was, uh, it's been delightful getting to know him. And Nate, thanks for opening your pulpit, letting me, or the Lord's pulpit, uh, letting me preach today. And if you like, and this is my last Hope Russia-esque thing to say, we have various things back there. If you'd like to get our newsletter, fill this out and leave it there or hand it to me. It's on in the left door on the way out. And we have these lovely green little brochures that explain more about what we do if you'd like to know more. So what we're exploring today in God's word, first of all, I want you to know that I think that every church needs to hear this. I want you to know that I haven't like, I'm not like singling y'all out. To, to share this with you in a finger-wagging way, like on the side, bad, very, very bad, like on, that's not what's going on in my heart. I think every Christian needs to hear this. I think every church needs to hear this. And let me begin with a question. And here's the question, why do Christians meet? Looking in the Bible, what are the non-negotiables for why Christians get together and do like what we're doing here this morning and when we gather together in homes, fellowship groups or community groups, whatever people call them. What are we trying to accomplish when we do that? Well, here's a list of five reasons, but five isn't a magic number. We, might, we could divide them up into six or four or seven, and these five overlap. They usually happens sort of all, of all at once. So first, why do Christians meet? Reason number one, Christians meet to worship God, to offer prayer and praise to the triune personal God of the Bible. Second, why do Christians meet? Christians meet to celebrate the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Third, Christians meet to propagate a biblical worldview, to study and apply the Bible focused around the gospel, uh, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, 
of Jesus and return of Jesus, and to, to pass that on to the next generation as well. We meet to propagate a biblical worldview. Fourth, Christians meet to pool our resources because there's good stuff we can do together, pooling our money, that we can do much better as a big team than we could do just by ourselves. So stewardship. And fifth, Christians meet to love and serve one another, to be encouraged, to, to use our spiritual gifts, to, to be reassured that we're not following Jesus alone. So there are five reasons why Christians meet. Worship, sacraments, Bible, generosity, and spiritual gifts slash service slash fellowship. And I'll submit that all five of these, they're non-negotiables. Then we can't leave any, couldn't leave them all out. They're, they're all essential. But did I leave anything out for why Christians meet? Might there be a sixth reason why Christians meet? Why, why yes, there is. There's a sixth reason. And God's Word gives it to us quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 14. The sixth reason, why do Christians meet? Christians meet so that our not yet Christian friends whom we love, whom we're inviting into our lives, Christians whom we've brought with us, Christians meet so these not yet Christian friends can become Christians, transitioning from eternal death to eternal life in the meeting. Christians meet so that so that people who don't yet know Christ can encounter Christ by encountering his body, his presence on earth. Very, very important. Before I read the text, there's two pieces of background information that I need to layer in. The first one is that 1 Corinthians 14 comes at the tail end of what is probably the longest specific discussion of how to manage Christian gatherings in all the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Five straight chapters on the care and feeding of Christian meetings. Like this one or like ones that go on in homes. Second piece of background information to layer in some, some complex mathematics here. 1 Corinthians 14 comes right after chapter 13 where Paul has his famous love tribute there. Love does not seek its own. Love is patient. Love is kind. So, so yes, 1 Corinthians 13, it's great to read it at weddings, and I'm all for that. But what we're looking at today is probably the most direct application of the love principle because it's right on the, on the heels of the love discussion in chapter 13. When we love as Christ loves chapter 13. What will that look like in our meetings? Chapter 14. So, let me read just a few verses for you. It's 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 23. And God's Word says this, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
So let's go through it again, stop and start. I'll read a little section and we'll stop and think about that and we'll go through it another trip through the passage. If therefore the whole church comes together, that's pretty clear that it's talking about this kind of a thing like what we're doing today. And if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, what's that? Some Christians have a serendipitous intimate way of talking to God and about God that transcends the known vernacular. And it's not the main point today at all. They, these Christians don't usually claim it to be revelatory, but tongues is only the surface issue here in 1 Corinthians 14 in this part of God's word. Speaking in tongues is not the main point. Something else below the surface, there's a deeper issue, a deep structure issue. The main point has to do with helping people who haven't found Christ yet find him in the meeting itself. So Paul gets to that deeper structure issue next. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? So the deep structure issue here is loving, is ministering to the unbeliever in this gathering because that helps that honors makes jesus happy i know jesus is filled with joy i'm a theologian but it makes jesus happy when you bring someone who doesn't know him in tow to in this gathering helping people who are on the road toward christ find christ in the meeting why why do that well well because we love them so if you're on the road toward Christ, investigating Christ, we're sort of talking about you today, but we're more or less talking more about ourselves, how to love you better. So we're not trying to put you on the spot. If that describes you, the members of the Corinthian church were doing the tongue speaking thing all at once in their public gathering, in their big meeting. And Paul is concerned with the effect on the newbie it's all about that new person, someone for whom this was their initial exposure to Christianity. Paul's concerned that Christians sometimes do things that makes their guests quite logically conclude that Christians wear tinfoil helmets. And we don't want to do that. So there's the next line. Would they not say that you're out of your minds? So God's word is concerned that our invited guests who don't know Jesus yet, who we brought with us because we love them, he's concerned that they might be drawn closer to Christ in his body rather than confused or repelled by what is going on in this meeting and how it's done and the attitude with which it's done and so on. Let's move on. But, verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters. Now what on earth is that? What, what was this prophecy going on in Corinth? What did it look like? What did it sound like? Well, Corinth is in Greece. Greece, this is a Greco-Roman culture and this prophecy here is probably best understood not in a Hebrew prophecy sense, but in a Greco-Roman prophecy sense, more like the oracle at Delphi and that sort of thing. 
So Hebrew prophecy came typically with revelatory force. Thus saith the Lord. Greco-Roman prophecy came with less authoritative force than inspired Hebrew prophecy. So this Greco-Roman style prophecy in Corinth, best we can tell, was more like what we might call Holy Spirit-powered sharing time of the word applied to life, of the gospel, us knowing Jesus, applied to daily living. 47 Corinthian church members are spread throughout two or three adjoining rooms in the home of one of the church members. A young woman stands up in the passageway so that people in all two or three rooms can hear what she says as she prophesies. She says, I have a strong impression that a few among us today here are caught up in an addiction. She says, the prophet Isaiah said that Jesus gives liberty to the captives and that he came to open prison doors for all who are stuck. So she says, we want you to know that we love you and that the power of Christ can change you and that we want to provide support and accountability to help you. And wouldn't you know it, well, the young lady is right on the money. She hits the target from what the Lord prompted her to say because there's a couple of people in the room there in Corinth who have the habit of looking at the wrong things on the ancient internet, known as the intertubes back then. And, and there are a couple of high-functioning um, alcoholics there in the room. So another, a man stands up and says, you know, you know, this was me just a year or so ago. This was me, and I just want to testify that I want to prophesy that Jesus has had an effect on me, and Jesus has changed me. So their prophecy, their sharing of God's word, their, their, their primitive first century understanding of just a few years after Christ had risen from the grave their, their uh, nascent understanding of the gospel applied to life, heard by everyone in the meeting from several sources. And what is the outcome? Well, continuing in the passage, he, that's the guest, he or she, the guest who doesn't know Jesus Christ yet, is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. So, folks, this is the guest's heart here. We have conviction of sin happening here for the very first time. We have an awakening of a sense of need in the meeting from someone who doesn't know the Messiah yet. The person is, is becoming aware based on the teaching, the sharing, that he or she needs what Jesus has to offer. I'm a sinner Christ has died for my sins. I really am stuck. Christ has risen from the tomb to set me free. It's crucial to see here my PCA friends, because I've been one longer than you probably, that what is, what, this is not a watering down of the message that's going on here. This is not entertainment that's going on here. Nothing of the sort. But what the scripture requires of us here is intentionally including, inviting, and being mindful of the interested non-Christian in the meeting. Assumption being that every time in the regular gathering, every time or many 
frequently when the word of God is proclaimed with power, shared, applied to life, that new conviction of sin will happen. That people convinced, people convinced for the first time of their need for Jesus in the meeting because the members have brought their friends and neighbors with them. Why? Because they love them the way Christ was known to love the unchurched and the distant from God. A few years ago, in my most recent pastorate, I'm now my, my full-time, my day job is working for Hope Russia, and I teach um, adjunct at a seminary in Atlanta. But in my most recent pastorate, before we moved from Dallas back to be home in, with our little granddaughter and family, and I invited a guy who was not a Christian yet, he was beginning to be awakened, and he had not professed faith yet. He was figuring out what Christianity was like. And I invited him into my discipleship group, a group of about a half a dozen guys that meet to hold one another accountable, and we go through a curriculum together, a Bible study curriculum and, and stuff. And I had been describing the group to the men for a year or two, that this group is the kind of group that you can bring, not an opponent of Christianity to come and mess up the chemistry, but you can bring someone who doesn't know Christ yet to get to know us and find Christ with us. So this man, Glenn, joined my discipleship group. He and his wife professed new faith, this is about three years ago now, professed new faith in Christ and joined the church by profession of faith. And Yes, I'm the one that drug him into the discipleship group, but who led him to Christ? It really is, it's a team thing. It was the guys in the group. It's him seeing that I'm not just some sort of a giant weirdo who, ultra-religious person, that there's other giant and medium-sized weirdos as well. And so it was the team that led him to Christ. The goal is for brand new Christ faith to be engendered in the meeting, new life change taking place in the meeting. That's what the scripture says here. Not a watering down, not entertainment. There's no greater thrill, no greater thrill than for a seasoned Christian to have a role in assisting your lost friend to becoming a Christian. And so, reading on in the text, falling on his face, he, that's the, the guest, will worship God and declare that God really is among you. So we have a new believer testimony here in the meeting, taking place here in God's word, in the main gathering of the church at Corinth. The guest decides that he or she is going to prophesy as well, and says, I've been coming here for quite a while, but by George, I think I just got it. With this now baby Christian speaking out, saying God is among you, Paul was quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the passage we read about 20 minutes ago, chapter 45, verse 14. This is very important to grasp what Paul means by quoting the Old Testament prophecy here at this point in his discussion. There's a huge list of prophecies in the Old Testament that look forward to a day when all of the Gentiles will come streaming into Jerusalem to hear the truth. And there's a massive list all predicting the same thing, that an age will come 
when the pagans, the Gentiles, will all come trooping, streaming into Jerusalem. Paul's Isaiah quote means this, very, very important, means this. And then we'll have an illustration where you can turn, dial your brains back a little bit and just listen to a story. But please hear this. Paul's Isaiah quote means that that future age is today and that this is Jerusalem and that your as yet unbelieving guests of this huge, your as, as yet unbelieving guests, non-Christian friends streaming in here because you brought them into the meeting, that's the fulfillment of this huge amount of Old Testament prophecy. The lost streaming into the meetings of Ascension Church is the fulfillment of the oft-repeated prophecy that the nations will stream into Jerusalem. It's that important. It's that central to the apostles' understanding of the gospel and of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So your friend at the golf course is the nations. This is Jerusalem. Your next door neighbor is the nations. Your discipleship group is Jerusalem. Why do Christians meet? Well, the five reasons, yes, plus the sixth. Christians meet so that our non-Christian friends, whom we love, because we're trying to live like Jesus in a lost world, whom we love, because we're inviting them into our lives and because church is a big part of our lives, we invite them into that part of our lives. And that's the way, most of the time, that's the way people get saved. People encountering Christ by encountering the body of Christ. Because y'all, I'm just getting to know y'all, y'all are a winsome, fun group. And, and so you have something to, to give away. You really do. In the old black and white candid camera TV episodes back with Alan Funt, Back in the 60s, back in the day, here's the story where you can dial your brain back and just take a break. Back when gas stations were also auto repair shops, the candid camera crew removed the engine from a car and they placed a photogenic young woman in the driver's seat of this engineless car and then they pushed it over the crest of a hill it rolled about half a mile down to a gas station and the photogenic young woman coasted up and asked the unwitting attendant to check the oil. And he lifted up the hood and saw straight through to the pavement. He said, ma'am, where's the engine in this car? And she said, well, it's right in there, of course. I'm not a mechanic. So the attendant leaned so far under the hood looking for the engine that his feet came up. Both feet came up off the ground and he came back and said, lady, your car ain't got no engine. She said, well, how did I get here then? And she, she, she said, well, can you have that fixed by lunch? I've got an appointment. So an automobile is made up both of essential and optional components. The engine is a vital component, of course. Tires, transmission, fuel tank, drive shaft, ignition system, all things that you actually have to have. But there's optional stuff that you really don't need. You could get along without it, like being able to control, electronically control your side mirrors without having to reach outside. I mean, that's cool, but you don't really need that. Or like a radio that adjusts its volume based on how fast you're going so you can turn the radio down by slamming on the brakes. That's cool, but you can live without that. 
Here in 1 Corinthians, the Word of God says that helping a person who, who's not yet a Christ follower, helping him, helping her find a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus in the meeting, in the gathering itself, is an essential, not an option. It's one of the essentials, and I think that every church needs to hear this, not just y'all. I think that we need to hear it as individuals. Why do Christians meet? Reason number six, Christians meet so that our not yet Christian friends whom we've brought with us can become Christians, transitioning from eternal life, eternal death, to eternal life in the gathering, in the gathering. Two applications and then we finish. What time do we usually end this service? Am I good? You're not going to get the shepherd's hook out? Promise? Okay. Two applications, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. So tune your meetings to the frequency of both and, in the way you talk about them, think about them, conceptualize them, plan them. Tune them to the frequency of both and. Our Father in heaven wants us, because we're his reps here, we're his representatives, we're the body of his Son on earth, to intentionally adjust these gatherings to a certain frequency where both believer and unbeliever can helpfully encounter the gospel in the meeting. The passage presents this in two ways to us. First one in verse 20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children. So what does it mean to think like a child vis-a-vis -vis Christian gatherings? It means to assume that the meeting that God wants it to be for Christians only. It is to think like a child, to be an immature Christian. Little children focus on their own needs. Feed me, change me, play with me. But in the same household, the mature adult focuses on the needs of the little ones who don't know how to feed or change or clothe themselves yet. And the same is true spiritually. So a mature believer experiences the worship service through the lens of yourself and people like you, other believers, but also through the lens of the not yet Christian whom you would like to bring in tow with you next week or next month. In the mature Christian, that's the way your brain is running about the Christian gathering. And the not yet mature Christian thinks about Christian gatherings through the lens of believers in God only. The second thought on tuning your services to the frequency of both and comes at the end of the chapter where Paul concludes the chapter by commanding them to do one of their favorite things less for the sake of the unbeliever. He commands them to give up something that is secondary for the sake of something that is primary. So he tells them to modify their meeting to do less of their favorite thing that they thought they saw as very spiritual for the sake of something primary, to major on majors and minor on minors. And y'all have a very winsome worship service and a lot of good stuff going on. I'm not your judge or your critic anyway. But just to be thinking about that, to have that in the mix. So, and the way you market and communicate your events, where you're reminding one another that this event is for us and our non-church friends, that that's why the event exists, or that becomes part of the drumbeat of the congregation. 
So tune your gatherings to the frequency of both ends, and now tune the frequency of your life to both ends. And it frustrates me a little bit in this passage, we're not told how the lost person got there into the gathering. It, it doesn't tell us how. But it has to be when you look at the big picture of the scripture, it has to have been mature Corinthian believers living the way Jesus lived when he was in Palestine, the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. It had to have been, part of it had to have been that people who know Christ beginning to live like Christ in a lost world and Jesus, you know, got in trouble for hanging out with and spending too much time with and crossing purity lines to build friendships with people who were far from God. So tune your life like Jesus to the frequency of both friendships with Christians, yes, by all means, and friendships with non-Christians. And so where you live, work, or play, choose a fishing pond where one of your goals, it's something that you like to do, where you're there automatically, where one of your goals is to make friends with people who don't know Jesus yet, to start gospel conversations, relationships with people who don't know Jesus yet, gospel friendships. For me, it's the gym. I go to the gym and I lift my tiny little weights and I squat, I squat as high as 135 pounds, I'll have you know, I'm not trying to brag. And, uh, and, but to make friends with guys there, and I've seen over many, many years an opportunity to do that. I've seen fruit over many, many years. Not a lot, but a little bit. In my second church plant, some of the young mothers chose a fishing pond. They chose a playground. They said, hey, let's start a playgroup where we'll bring our cute little kids out to the playground and let them run around and play. We'll sip on our Starbucks coffee and we'll see who walks up. So, so Dee Dee, leading this little merry band of young mothers, they chose a playground in a subdivision in full view of many homes. And two young mothers, Karen Barnett and Ann Lee, peered through the Venetian blinds and saw these little toddlers playing at the playground, and they had their little toddler, they bundled them up and brought them out to play with the playgroup. And the women who were members of the church invited them in, they watched the kids together, have their Starbucks together, and they said, hey, you know, we all go to the same church, why don't you come with us? So Karen and Jerry Barnett and Ann Lee began to attend Ivy Creek Church as interested unbelievers, as folks who hadn't figured the gospel out yet sitting with their new friends, and over a period of months, they were able to hear and consider the claims of Christ, hearing it from the pulpit, but not just from the pulpit, hearing it from their friends with the playgroup, and they became new Christians and joined the church by profession of faith from the fishing pond of the young moms, because usually God does not expect you to lead someone to Jesus all by yourself unless he's given you a special gift of evangelism, all he expects you to do is to make friends and play on the team. And it's the team that leads people to Christ as we include people in winsome Christian gatherings. It's the team that does it. So you have a homework assignment 
from this sermon. It's a very specific homework assignment, and it's to add one sentence to your daily prayers. One little sentence. And here it is. It's to pray this way. Lord, please help blank, fill in name, to become a Christian, and please use me in the process. Lord, please help blank to become a Christian, and please use me in the process. And the name that you insert in the blank should be someone in addition to members of your family. Not that family doesn't count, but we're talking about living like Jesus in a lost world where we live, work, and play. So someone who's nearby who doesn't know Jesus yet. And my wife and I have seen God. I'm, I'm not like the second coming of Billy Graham or some, some, there's some pastors that could share the gospel with a styrofoam cup and it would become a Christian. And I'm not one of those. But my wife and I have seen a little bit of fruit as we've prayed that. We prayed it with our kids when they were young, when we we're putting, uh, putting them to bed. So there's, that's your homework assignment because God will then work changing your heart and helping you grow to maturity, to love the lost the way Jesus does, the way Jesus did and does. So let's pray together about this. Father in heaven, for those who were saved as adults, like, well, like me, we thank you that back then there was a place where an outsider was free to come and inquire and, and to make friends and decide to become an insider. We thank you for providing that environment for us. And I thank you for the winsome folks here in this church and all the, the things, good things that are going on for your kingdom and your gospel. And I ask that you would richly bless them that all six over the years ahead, all six key things in, the, in meetings would happen. So bless them in that we pray in Jesus' name, amen.